Hello, hello, hello. So before I go into the next episode of the podcast, I'm really excited to announce that the new intake for the Female Fat Loss Program is now open. So it will be starting on the 7th of August. And it's perfect if you are just coming back from holidays and ready to kind of get back into things and the swing of things just before the school starts. So if you are interested in it, so it involves a six-week program, You'll get tailored calories, tailored programs with workout videos. You will have a Facebook group Facebook group to keep you accountable. You'll have me to keep you accountable. You'll have weekly check-ins. You will have weekly lives with me and that will answer your questions and Q&As. And it's amazing. And there's no foods off limits there. We're literally working for a weekly calorie average. So it's an amazing program and the, the, how good it's been since we started, since I started launching it is to say that 50% of those who've come from and that's at this date is that people who started up in June, 50% of those are going into the August one already. So that's saying that it is, and that's that's only halfway through. So those 50% have, have renewed. So that's how amazing the results have been so far. So if you're interested in working with me in a in the female fat loss program starting on the 7th of August, the price is 169. So 169 for six weeks and the the link is in the write-up and we're starting on the 7th of august and everything will be sent over to you the friday beforehand looking forward to seeing you there if you do sign up you won't regret it hello 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 so welcome to the next episode of the shane walsh podcast so today's guest is someone that i've been trying to get on for a very long time in schedules and massive projects coming up on her side of things have come up and it's really really humbled and honored to have the amazing dr megan rossi on the podcast so i've been following dr megan rossi for a long time on social media and i from someone who suffers from ibs unless you got a, a little consultation at the beginning from megan as well so megan is the the good health doctor on instagram and she has an amazing book called eat yourself healthy which is an amazing um toolkit and resource for P- coaches pts any sufferers of ibs i would highly recommend to use it and on today's podcast we're talking about our brand new book which is amazing and i was very grateful for dr megan rossi's team and herself to send me over a couple of copies and i read it so quickly it was, it was amazing to see and amazing to read and it's called eat more live well and in that book Megan talks about what is plant-based diet and what are misconceptions around it. We talk about the super six and the point system, not that other point system that other people are talking about. We talk about that not all calories are created equally. We talk about how to eat healthy on a budget because there's that misconception. Frozen veggies are your friend as well. We talk about eating more variety and why that happens. We talk about is apple a day keeping the doctor away an actual myth or is it realistic? We talk about how to deal with fussy eaters. We also talk about kind of the good health and the impact it has on PCOS, menopause, fertility. And we talk about how to get more protein in in your vegetables, that side of things. It's an amazing book and I would highly recommend if you're looking to learn more on plant-based and how to kind of make it a little bit more approachable, a little bit more achievable for yourself, I would highly recommend to do it and read it. So get more, eat more, live well is an amazing book and resource and eat yourself healthy is an amazing book for resource for IBS and that side of things. So I'll put those links into the show notes and you can click on those and buy those. Highly recommend to do it. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Dr. Megan Rossi. Megan, how are we? Great. I uh, am enjoying the heat in London at the moment, being an Aussie. 
I feel right at home finally. It's I'm Irish and I don't like the heat, so it's I have to close the window for the podcast episode. So it's it's really warm in here. Yeah, I'm actually married to um, one of you, an Irishman. So I do get we have a lot of arguments about the temperature in our house. I can imagine. Yeah, we don't do too well. 16, 17 degrees is kind of like that's hot for us. Yeah. Uh, so. Dr. Megan Rossi, thank you so much for coming on. I've mean to get you on for ages and massive congratulations on a new book. I literally read it in about two hours. It was absolutely amazing. So for anyone who isn't aware of you and your work and the amazing books that you have, can you give us a little bit of a short synopsis? Yeah, so I um, am a dietitian by background and did a PhD in gut health about a decade or so ago. And that was really stemming from just my clinical experience. I worked in the hospital setting with all different types of conditions from different cancers to mental health issues, but also was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found so striking is that everyone's coming from very different backgrounds, but they're all coming to me complaining of the gut. So that was around 2010, and there wasn't a whole lot of gut health research really out at that time. So that's when I embarked on the PhD, signed away uh, my early 20s to the lab, and um, it really just game-changed, you know, my whole view on nutrition, understanding that actually how we nourish these bacteria within us can have very far-reaching benefits from things like our mental health to our hormone health, et cetera. And I knew at that stage I wanted to dedicate the rest of my career to gut health. So I looked around the world who was doing the most innovative gut health research and it was King's College in London. So I begged them for a job and moved over here and it was 2015. Um, and yeah, I think probably about a year actually being here, I, um, you know, working at King's, I, I still work as a research fellow at King's and I love the research, research side of things. But I think I just got a bit frustrated that despite all of the amazing research that was being done by not just my team, but teams all over the world, just wasn't being translated. Um, and I, I thought, look, if I, you know, set up social media as one does in the 21st century and, and reach 100 or so people, I'd be doing more of a service in terms of science communication. But it was just really great timing in terms of the media and everyone was really looking for, I guess, a credible voice in the gut health arena because it was, you know, in the media headlines all the time. And, um, yeah, just a lot of people started to, you know, really be fond of, of the account and many opportunities have, have come since, including, like you mentioned, the books. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind few years for you then. <laughs> like yeah, it's such a short bit. space of time that it's kind of just blown up like you're writing with the Daily Mail now as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it has been an incredible um, opportunity. I've got a food brand called Bio and Me, which is now available in Ireland as well, thankfully. Um, and yeah, I think it all, you know, none of it was expected. I did not plan any of this. Um, I thought maybe a textbook would kind of be my career goal. Um, but I just said yes to opportunities. And with the fundamental goal of always trying to empower people um, with with the knowledge and I guess tools, including, you know, food products that are really going to deliver, you know, the best gut health possible based on the latest research. And you mentioned the the, the brand new book, Eat More, Live Well. And like, it's, it's an amazing book and it's so handy and so quick to understand. And it's really easy. I think that's the hardest part where like the gut, it's so, there's so much research out there and trying to dissect it to explain it to like general population like Mary down the road. And I think the main ethos of the book is plant-based. And I literally had this conversation with my girlfriend last night and she, because I got two copies of it, so I gave one to her and she was like, plant-based. It's like, that's going vegan. I was like, 
No, that's not. So can you explain what plant-based diet actually means and the kind of the various different spectrums of it? Yeah, no, look, absolutely. Your girlfriend is certainly not alone <laughs> with that interpretation. I think, you know, with social media, et cetera, there has been, I guess, a bit of miscommunication about what plant-based is. But if you think about, you know, the words, it's based on plants. The foundation of your diet is plants. Um, but whatever you choose to add on top of that is completely up to you. So at one end, yes, you've got veganism, 100% plant-based. But at the other end, you've got flexitarianism, where, again, it's based on plants, but people still enjoy, um, you know, seafood and fermented dairy and things like that. Now, according to the science, wherever you sit on that plant-based spectrum, you can have brewing gut health and overall health. You don't need to be at either end of the spectrum. Um, it's really, I guess, a lot of it comes down to taste preferences. And then, of course, you know, veganism, I understand the cultural and animal cruelty reasons for going down that way. But I guess, and I, and I talk about this in the book, if you are choosing to go 100% plant-based, you do need to watch out for a few, uh, you know, elements in your diet that you could be um have nutrition deficiencies surrounding, um, you know, things like omega-3, oily fish, you know, is actually quite beneficial and helpful for not only our gut bacteria, but things like our mental health. Um, so actually, if you are cutting all that animal products out, I do recommend taking something like an algae oil supplement to get those omega-3s because there are plant-based sources of omega-3s, but they're just not the same as animal sources. So, you know, to really support your mental health there, I do recommend people take that uh, algae oil supplement. You mentioned in the, the book about kind of getting 30 different, the 30 points. And when I know from clients, points equate to like certain slimming clubs or certain diets and stuff like that, but you have a massive positive spin on it. Can you talk about the point system behind the, the plants and including more plants in your life? Yeah, look, so this was founded on a research study, as the entire book is. It's very much about, I guess, translating that latest scientific evidence about how our body and our gut microbes work best into very practical, um, you know, tasty and delicious ways of eating. That's kind of the fundamental principle. And so the study, um, which came from the US, showed that people who ate at least 30 different plants in their diet per week had better gut health than those who ate the same 10 on repeat. Um, and what I really liked about that study is they actually looked at people who were vegan and those who were omnivores, so still ate plenty of veg, but also ate animal products. And what they showed is being vegan didn't necessarily mean you had a better better gut health the fundamental I guess predictor of better gut health was the plant-based diversity so how many different plants you were getting so I reviewed I guess how they undertook that study and I came up with this plant point system because like you said I think you know a lot of people want extra guidance they, they do kind of like counting things so instead of counting things like calories, et cetera, whereas there's quite a lot of um, nuances to it and the evidence suggests doesn't lead to long-term results, then I'm getting people to count plants instead. Um, so each different plant contains you know, a wealth of, of plant chemicals. So uh, I've given every plant gets a new point. So if you have an apple and an orange and a banana, you get three points. If you just ate three apples, you just get one point. So it's really trying to foster getting in all of those different plant chemicals um, because each different type of, of plant contains different nutrients. So I talk about the super six. Um, so there's essentially six plant-based food groups. And it, I recommend um, based on the science that people try getting all six most days, if not every second day. So they include your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, your beans and your pulses and your herbs and your spices. So that's where the, the 30 points come from across those super six. 
You had an amazing, I think in the book as well, you have case studies of clients that you've worked with. I think I'm going to, I might get the name wrong. I think it's David in relation to a case study, in relation to being very, very busy um, and struggling to get that kind of the vegetables and the greens and stuff into his body. How did you kind of work with David on that? And what advice would you give to someone who has a busy professional working life? Yeah, look, I totally get it, particularly since having a baby. I'm like, you don't have any more than like 10, 15 minutes in the kitchen. And that's, you know, the premise for a lot of the recipes in the book. So I've got these, um, a recipe for the uh, five different cuisine um, stir fry adventures. So every night of the week, it literally takes like 10 minutes to make, where it's the same base of the recipe. So you choose, instead of just getting like broccoli or cauliflower, you just get the mixed stir fry pack of veg and you get like five plant points there. Then you choose a type of whole grain. It could be something like quinoa or frica, whatever's kind of going. You can get those two-minute kind of in the microwave packs as well. Um, then you choose your type of protein. And for that, it could be something like oily fish or you might want to go something like legumes, like uh, tinned butter beans. And then the, I guess the unique flavorful part comes in around the cuisine flavor. So I've got the Indian, the Thai, um, the Chinese, uh, etc., where the sauce and the flavor takes about you know five minutes to quickly whip up, um, and it's full of these plant chemicals, but also really flavorsome. So you just add that um, to kind of those base foundations of the veg, the grains, the protein, um, and then you've got a delicious meal in about five or so minutes. So about 10 minutes actually all up um so yeah the, the fundamental principle is just thinking at the grocery store uh diversity wherever you can so instead of chickpea can you know you get the mixed bean can you get an extra three points instead of just getting your pumpkin seed you get the mixed seed pack of, of seeds so actually at no extra cost all time you can really hit 30 plus and the plan uh, the um some of the meal or the menu plan guidelines um you know easily get up to like 70 plant points a week if you're following it um, but of course it's not you know it's not a regimented sort of way of eating and that's why I talk about it's very much about adapting things to your lifestyle and your taste preferences I can hear someone talking right now when you're talking about going to get all those ingredients that money is going to be the massive factor and I think in the in like and I know in the book you talk about that like, is there a way to do it on a budget that someone isn't going? Because I think when people hear that eat healthy or organic, they're like, they think money and they think endless amounts of pits and money and stuff like that. Can you, like you talk about it in the book, can you talk about it a little bit more? Yeah, I think this is a really important one with the cost of living going through the roof that Crazy. people realize that healthy eating actually can save you money despite what all these fancy health food stores want you to believe. Um and, you know, it is a bit of a bugbear of mine that they kind of put health on this expensive stool where actually it really is accessible. So things like canned beans, like tin lentils, are so um, affordable. They're like 60p for, you know, a good 400 grams. Um, and that's much cheaper than any sort of, you know, animal product out there, you know, whether it's cheese or, you know, even the cheapest mints, you know, legumes are going to be well, well cheap. Um, and they're such a great source, not only of your protein, um, but things like your fiber and all these other plant chemicals. So I think that is one is don't be afraid of getting things like your canned beans. You don't need to go and spend all this time like soaking, etc. Um, although that will, will make it a little bit more cheap. Um, but I think in terms of convenience and cost factor, you know, relying on the canned versions, but just making sure that they're not in salt, they're just in um, in water is kind of the best one there. The other one is making sure you buy in season. 
um, you know, I think some people tend to, you know, cling on to the same sorts of fruit and veg. So, for example, they might go, oh, I should just, oh, I love strawberries, so I'm just going to have strawberries all year round. And therefore, at some times of the year, they're paying like six pounds for some strawberries, which is just unbelievable. So um, I always say, you know, you know what's in season based on how cheap it is. So foods are much cheaper when they're in season. And if you can buy in bulk and then freeze it if you've got the capacity at home. So then you can, you know, have perhaps if you really are into strawberries, you can have, you know, your strawberry yogurt ice cream, um, you know, later on in the year, but not have to pay large amounts. Um, so it's, it's things like that. Mention frozen veggies there in relation. I think a lot of people think that like they are a little bit worse than the fresh stuff. Can you kind of put that myth to bed, please? Yeah, look, absolutely. We know that um, when it comes to frozen veg, actually, they do snap freeze a lot of them, particularly things like the beans, and that retains a lot of that nutrition. Um, so I always have a pack of frozen veg in in my freezer at home for those days where you don't have time to go to the store and, and you know buy anything fresh. Um, you know, there are some nutrients that are um, some types of plant chemicals, we call them phytochemicals, which may be slightly more available if it is from a fresh source, um, but it's only it's only minimal. And overall, um, for example, I eat, I eat frozen veg at least once or twice a week um, because I know that they are still really nutrient dense and they're efficient and cost effective, etc. So I'm very pro them. I would say best not to live on them, you know, and eat nothing fresh. Uh, but overall, definitely a good ad to buy. Yeah, people that take everything to the extreme. So I'm glad, glad you <laughs> no, no, I always have to make that caveat. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in the book, you talk about eat more. And I think the the message behind it is really, really incredible in relation to eat more variety. Why is variety so important to the gut microbiome, to our overall well-being? Our mental health was one of the big things I took away from the book. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess when we think of this, this diversity, this variety concept, there are four key ones. So one is if you're having a diverse range of, of foods, um, then you're much less likely to have a nutrition deficiency. So, you know, the people who eat the same foods on repeat, if they're just having like the kale and the chicken, they're more likely to have a nutrition deficiency because they're not getting that breadth of um of different vitamins and nutrients which we know are in different types of food categories and in the book i do have a table which highlights the different types of nutrients that are quite heavy in each of the super six and you see that if you're missing out on one of the super six you could be missing out on one of these categories of, of nutrients there so reduce your risk of nutrition deficiencies greater enjoyment uh, of food is the second one and i think that you know should be um you know celebrated the the deliciousness and the flavor of combining foods and working together um, because at the end of the day, you know, food should be enjoyed. Um, it shouldn't just be considered as, you know, something to make you healthy or for you to live longer. Yes, it does that, uh, but also it's such a social thing. So I think we need to celebrate the enjoyment and flavor of food. The third one uh, is about the synergistic effect of, of food, which I think we probably don't speak enough about, but we know that, you know, Mother Nature is just so incredible the way that, you know, she's developed foods and, and has these combination of nutrients in it. So, for example, um, magnesium and uh, prebiotics such as um, inulin, actually the combination of them means that your body is able to better absorb things like magnesium. 
Um, so that's why things like having dates uh, with some nut butter in it actually is a great combination because the dates contain the prebiotics and the nut butter contains the magnesium. So have them together. Not only does it actually taste nice when you food combine there, but actually going to enhance your body's ability to absorb that magnesium, which is really important for things like sleep as well. Uh, and there's many other examples. So things like um, turmeric, you know, combining that with some black pepper black pepper when you're making a curry actually that really increases your body's ability to absorb curcumin which is this anti-inflammatory chemical which is really beneficial throughout the entire body um, then there's things like uh, lycopene rich foods so like tomatoes um, we know that adding some healthy oils to them like olive oil actually again increases your ability to absorb um, lycopene which helps protect your skin from uv damage so I could go on and on and on. There's all of these examples where you don't even really think about it, but you do naturally food combine. And we've been doing it for, you know, history. Um, and there is, a, you know, I guess that health benefit attached to that. And then the fourth element of why we should be eating variety comes down to the bacteria, essentially. So um, we know that plants feed our gut bacteria fundamentally. Um, and I guess that's, a bit of a, a new understanding. We always knew people who ate more plants had better, you know, um, overall health, longevity, mental health, hormonal health, but we didn't necessarily understand the mechanism. But now because we've been able to investigate more around the gut bacteria, thanks to technology, we've now appreciated that plants is like a fertilizer for gut bacteria. Um, but like I said, each different category of plants has a different type of fertilizer for different bacteria. So if we're, you know, cutting out the legume categories, the beans and pulses category, we're going to be missing out certain types of fibers and um, I guess gut bacteria fertilizers. And therefore we're going to miss out a category of bacteria that do certain things in our body, produce certain hormones and control a different me metabolic pathways. So that's why we see that people who have a more diverse range of, of plants in their diet, have a more diverse range of gut bacteria that leads to having a more diverse range of skills within them and therefore better mental health, heart health, longevity, etc. I think it's important to say it's not to outdo medication. Yeah. <laughs> That's the important part of that sentence. You mentioned apples, and I think one of the big, like the, the kind of like the old wives' tale is keep the apple a day keeps the doctor away. Can you kind of explain what it is and can you explain kind of like, is the truth behind things and the benefits behind an apple because some I one or two of the kind of like the stuff that was actually in the apple shocked me yeah look I I put the apple image and dissected it to make it look like a pharmacy in the book just to highlight that the humble apple contains over 300 plant chemicals including 100 bacteria in each and every apple and some of those chemicals is like PCOS, um, PCOS is in sitol, which we know is beneficial yeah. for um, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. Then there's things like dopamine, the happy hormone, et cetera, is in, an, in the apple. So that's certainly not to say that I'm kind of prioritizing an apple and saying we should all have an apple a day because actually that goes against the principle of diversity. But why I did that is just to show that the humble apple contains, you know, incredible plant chemicals. Um, let's extrapolate that out to the other super six food categories and the thousands of other plant varieties. And they all have their own unique plant profile of these different chemicals. So actually, I want people to get inspired and get really excited by the fact that, you know, even the basic, you know, fruit um, has some pretty impressive um, chemicals behind it. So, yeah, you need to eat diversity, but not an apple a day, I don't, I don't think. 
Indianostal thing was from from working with women with PCOS. Indianostal thing was the bit that kind of uh, threw me threw me a little bit. So, um, in relation to protein, because I, I think protein's definitely uh, people being more aware of protein and the protein intake. And I think when people think of kind of like plant based and vegetarianism and veganism, they think that it's going to be more difficult to get protein in. Is it as hard as as it is? Or is there, is there an easier way to do it? Yeah, look, people are often really surprised when they find out how much protein is in, in certain foods. So like a couple of, of lentils contains like nearly 20 grams of protein, um, you know, 30 grams of pistachio nuts, which is very small, contains like six grams. Um, and I think, what was it? The Some um, oats, like a half a cup of raw oats contains around 50 grams, 15 grams of protein. Um, yeah, and I could go on. So actually, if you add up the amount of protein you get from plants, it's quite easy to get your one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight, which is kind of what we're seeing as a recommendation. Of course, if you're an athlete, you might need a little bit more protein than that. Um, and as we age, we might need a little bit more protein than the one gram per uh, kilogram of body weight. Um, but actually, it is quite easy to attain. I would say, though, again, you know, my eating philosophy is it's about what you include and not exclude. So, you know what? Still, if you'd like to, you can include animal products. There. You can include, you know, some fermented dairy, some oily fish and some eggs as part of of your um, nutrition to get extra protein if you want, but you don't have to is the point. You can easily hit your protein quota um, from plants, but it's not necessary if, you know, if we're thinking just health reasons, you know, have some animals in there too. And what about BCAAs? What, sorry? What about BCAAs with someone who is potentially going for a more plant-based or a vegetarian or vegan kind of orientated diet? Yeah, look, we know that, um, Animal-based protein is, is more of a complete protein. So they, they include all of those amino acids, the building blocks of protein that um, essentially our body can't make on their own. So they're the essential ones. Uh, whereas um, plants, a lot of them are missing out a few of the kind of essential amino acids. But actually, when you focus on um you know, natural ways of eating, we do food combine, which means that we include things like whole grains and legumes together, which actually then forms um, the, you know, the, the essential amino acids. Now, the branching amino acids, you know, there is a little bit of evidence to take, you know, specific supplements um, to enhance some types uh, of athletic performance. And you probably know a little bit more about that. Um, but I would say, you know, in clinic, I've certainly seen, um, you know, quite high level athletes being 100% plant based and actually not taking any types of uh, amino acid supplements and just completely relying on, on food. And, you know, they're at the top of their game. Amazing. And you mentioned in in the book as well in relation to we may be like you alluded to this, I think, in relation to we may be living longer, but we may not be living as healthy. I, I heard that somewhere else recently as well. Can you ex kind of expand on this? Because I think this is one of these things that people are priding themselves on. They're living longer, but it's actually potentially not the last five years, 10 years is literally like, pardon the pun, being a vegetable. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, it's if you think about it, everyone's kind of different. But I'm like, I want my last years to be in my prime and then end on a kind of a good note. But yeah, so over the last 60 years or so, the stats have suggested we our life expectancy has increased around 20 years. Um, but when we look at those 20 years, the, the studies have shown that 
we're usually burdened by four or so chronic conditions in those last 20 years. So I'm like, that does not sound very fun. And if you look at the stats of how many people, you know, in those final 20 years are taking multiple types of medications, you know, it's it's through the roof. Um, so thanks to, you know, medicines and everything, they've gotten us to live longer, but like you highlighted, not necessarily healthier. Um, so that's something I'm, you know, really pro at in terms of, looking at the evidence around how we really support our gut health to make sure that we not only have that longevity, but that those extra years that we're gaining are really healthy years. Um, and a lot of that we, we see particularly around, you know, nourishing that two-way communication that occurs between your gut and your brain. So there is a lot of research emerging, highlighting the importance of nourishing those gut to reduce your risk of things like dementia, for example. Um, so, yeah, again, the book really does, I guess, focus on that, that holistic um, kind of approach to food and, and not just, you know, getting you kind of living longer but not necessarily healthier. As a new parent, you might have a fussy eater. Uh, you may not. You could have looked at the draw. But how, because I know this case study in, in the book as well, kind of like fussy eater. Can you talk about how and why some people may be more fussy eaters than others and how to work around this with the individual? Because there's an amazing case study in the book. Yeah, one of my clients. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely... Um, something that is common firstly if you're a fussy eater and, and something that I get in clinic often is like okay get it that plants will you know achieve my health goal but I actually don't like the taste of plants um, and that's when I guess I need to kind of remind them of two very important things one is that anything can taste bad if it's not prepped right so like even a steak if you fry the hell out of it and turn it into rubber it, and like it's not juicy at all no one's going to like it. It's just not nice. And actually the same goes with veggies uh, in particular. They're usually ones people say, oh, I don't like them. They're fussy eaters. So in the book, I've got a recipe for a Brussels sprout um, pesto. I call it the super pesto. I don't actually say the word Brussels sprout because I know it'll turn people off. But I love making that recipe for people who I know say they don't like sprouts. And I get them, obviously, don't tell them what's in it. And like, oh, this is really delicious. And then I'm like, got real sprouts in it um and that's kind of the same with a lot of my recipes so I also have a spinach and ricotta um uh stuffed pasta shell recipe hey, look, yeah I've cut out half of the cheese and replaced it with a can of, of of mixed beans now that not only makes it much cheaper but actually adds in those prebiotics from the beans to feed the gut bacteria etc and you wouldn't even notice so when I first met my husband typical Irishman you know potato and meat sort of guy um, he was not into plants. So I, you know, had been doing a lot of these sneaky things like as well. Smoothies are a great opportunity to put like frozen cauliflower in it. You know, you can't even taste it and you get, again, all those beautiful plant chemicals. So you can make veg taste good is kind of the first point to that. And that's what a lot of the recipes in the book is all about. Um, but secondly, is that our taste buds do evolve if we let them, essentially. Um, so our taste buds actually regenerate every 10 or so days. Um, so if we slowly start to increase plants in our diet, even if we have to sneak them in initially, your taste buds will start to change. And we think some of the mechanisms around kind of taste preferences also occurs because we've got truly, um, trillions, um, millions of bacteria in our mouth. Uh, called our oral microbiome. And these are thought to 
change the kind of the chemical reaction that triggers different flavor preferences. So with our change in diet, the mouth microbiome changes as well. Again, we think that's why after around four or so weeks, uh, again, this has been shown in, in clinical trials, we do start to have more of a preference for veg um, the more we include. Yeah, it's amazing because I because I, I, I can hear my my Christmas dinner comes to my my brother in Brussels sprouts. So I think that might be the way for my parents to uh, to spike them with yeah. Brussels sprouts. But you just can't tell them because a no. lot of people it is psychological as well. If they've got like a bad relationship with it, and it's me and celery. Know, yeah, <laughs> I can't stop. So I'll be sneaking celery into <laughs> to next meal somehow. I find um, it straight away. And people who kind of like no 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 that's different for me you know I'm never going to grow into liking something. Think about when you were younger and you had like a taste of dark chocolate or coffee or you know olives or something and you're like oh that's disgusting how do my parents eat that and now a lot of us are like I can't go a day without it. Um, you know it's like alcohol. You mentioned alcohol in the book when you first taste alcohol as a kid or when you're like given a sip of Guinness or something like that you don't yeah. necessarily like it. Yeah. What people drink on a daily basis. Now, exactly, and crave it, right? So our taste buds are very adaptable. Um, one of the things you mentioned in the, the book was in relation to not all calories are created equal. And I think this can be taken out of context, uh, but so I think it's important for people to understand what it actually means. Can you kind of go through it a little bit more? Yeah, look, I think the whole um, kind of movement to fixate on calories is not necessarily a productive one. Uh, where the government has now mandated that all kind of large restaurants, I think they have to have at least 250 employees, now have to put calories on their menus. Now, I think there's, yeah, there certainly is a place for calories, firstly, in in our, um, you know, in the dietary world. But there are three things I think people should keep in mind. One is that the calorie information is not as accurate, particularly for whole foods as we've been led to believe. So almonds, for example, actually provide our body with 20% 30%, 30% less calories um, than what the packet says. Uh, and that is because, no, it's 20% less calories uh, than what the packet says. And that's because the way we work out calories in the lab is very different to how our digestive system works. So actually the calorie information for whole foods is usually um, incorrect and, and a little higher than actually what our body gets for it, gets from it. And I think that, is important because otherwise people see the calories who are calorie counting of nuts and seeds and go, whoa, too high, not having any of them. And then they're missing one of the super six and all of the health benefits attached to that. Like um, nuts have actually been shown to reduce the appearance of wrinkles, for example. So, you know, there's many additional benefits. So that's the first one is the calorie information not always accurate. It's been led to believe. Um, The second one is there is this thermogenic effect of food. So when we eat food, actually we burn calories through the digestive process. And studies really nicely have shown that the ultra processed version of a food compared to the more wholesome version. And in the study, they actually used um, a cheese sandwich, one with like the plastic cheese and white bread, one with um, whole grain bread and more of like a quality cheddar. And they showed that um, the quality cheddar and bread um, example burnt 50% more calories through the digestive process than the ultra processed version. So the net gain in calories um, was actually significantly lower when you had the whole version. So there's that second point. Um, and then there's this third point around, I guess, the, the satiety effect of, um, of foods where calories don't kind of, you know, take that into account. So, you know, again, they've shown at a really, you know, high level scientific journals um, that when people 
go on on two different diets that are completely matched for calories but one is ultra processed foods and one is the wholesome version again match for calories match for protein carbs and fats and what they find when they go on the ultra processed version actually they gain significantly more weight um, compared to the wholesome version even though they're eating the same calories and a lot of that comes to people kind of over consuming because they don't have that satiety fact uh, etc so there is quite a wealth of research behind um, why you know calorie fixating is not necessarily uh, the best way particularly if weight management is your goal I think an awful lot of people do struggle with their society though because there are there obviously are people who potentially are a little bit bigger they may not have they may have increased appetite compared to other people i don't think a lot of people actually realize where they sit on the hunger scale or whatever it may be so that could be something to like if you've especially if you've been kind of dieting for years you've no idea if you're hungry you've no idea if you're if you're full so i think that would probably be a great step to kind of work with on someone um if if someone is working with someone rather than trying to do another quick fix diet which are pretty retarded anyway um, and also in the book there's actually this um validated mindful eating questionnaire yes um and then an exercise for people who are struggling with their relationship with food if they're tending to kind of binge eat and over consume it's really worthwhile doing that it, you know it takes you just choose your favorite food you do it twice a week for nine weeks but really can help kind of reinvigorate your relationship with those kind of you know, binge foods, um, and you feel more satisfied with much smaller amounts. So it is, it is worth kind of having a think about that. Yeah, one of the questions that I get clients to ask is, "Are you hungry enough for fruit?" Because nobody's really going to go for fruit if they're kind of like bored or whatever it may be. But it's a great way to get your sweet teeth hit as well, particularly around cravings time, and that leads into great ways, good health, including importance of kind of with menopause, PCOS, fertility. Because I think. If you can get it right earlier on, the symptoms may be able to be managed a little bit further along if you're kind of at that perimenopause stage in your life. So why is gut health so important at those various different illnesses and kind of like menopause and symptoms and stuff? Yeah, look, it's it's a really good one. Um, and, you know, it, it's incredibly common to have some sort of hormonal imbalance, uh, particularly as we get older, um, not just females, but men too, even though men don't necessarily talk about it as much. And what we've discovered is that our gut bacteria are actually really important in estrogen regulation. Um, so they actually uh, produce a, a certain type of enzyme, um, which helps kind of recycle estrogen kind of taking it from our gut and then put it back into our blood. So they are actually really important in um, kind of controlling our estrogen levels circulating throughout the body. Um, and that's why, you know, studies, particularly ones which are looking at people going through menopause, have shown that people who eat more plants, nourish their gut bacteria, actually have around a 20% reduction of things like hot flushes for some of the, the symptoms of going through the menopause compared to those who don't kind of eat more plants. Um, and similarly, we see uh, things like that with PCOS, where, again, changing our gut, our gut bacteria and really nourishing them with plenty of high-fibre foods um, across all of those super six uh, can actually have really remarkable um, kind of results on their, on their hormone levels when they get tested before and after kind of nourishing their gut bacteria. In relation to the fiber, oh, this is the last question. This is one I think a lot of people are going to be looking for this. And I think a lot of people like to kind of pigeonhole themselves with targets. I don't know why. But in relation to kind of like the amount of fiber that we need on a daily basis, does it different differentiate 
gender to gender or is there an overall target that people should aim for or just get more veggies in? Yeah, look, I think sometimes we like to overcomplicate it. Yeah. Um, you know, in in like US, for example, their dietary recommendations for fiber is different between males and females. In the UK, it's actually the same across um, genders. Um, so in the UK, they recommend we get around 30 grams of fiber a day. Most of us get less get around less than 20 grams of fiber a day um but there is a study in the book and and shane i know you're a fan of the smiles trial the study in the book which um was kind of the first landmark study in 2017 to really reinforce that if we nourish our gut through the right nutrition that plant diversity um not plants only but just adding in that diversity of plants then you could have measurable and clinically relevant improvements in our mental health people these people who uh, had um diagnosed depression um so, you know, with studies like that, we've really been able to, um, I guess, identify that real importance of that fibre. And in that study, they actually gave people 50 grams of fibre a day, so 50 grams. Um, so, like I said, most of us are getting less than 20 grams of fibre. And the thing about fibre um, is that you know, we've all heard that word, but it's not just one nutrient. Um, it's not the case of just taking a good old fiber supplement and going, yep, got my 30 grams. Because it's close to 100 different types of fiber. And that comes back to the importance of getting in those super six because each different category of plants contain different types of fiber, which feed those different gut bacteria. So um, the thing about the fiber is, yeah, human cells can't digest it. We don't have the enzyme needed to digest it. The, the things in our body that do digest it is, is the bacteria. They've got those special enzymes which can break down that fibre, turn it into a range of chemicals which do things like strengthen our gut lining, regulate our appetite hormones, and you know, I could go on about what they do. So that's why we see fibre being so beneficial because it's food for the gut bacteria um, and they send, they produce these chemicals which go throughout the body based on how much fibre we eat. So um, I don't think we necessarily need to fixate and count the amount of fiber we're having. Um, but if you're getting in, you know, your super six, hitting your at least 30 different plants a week, you're very likely to be getting at least 30 grams. And from there, I say, why not hit to 40 different plants a week and, and keep going up that way? But a lot of the menu plans in the book have got around 50 grams of fiber uh, a day. Some of the recipes are, but the pictures look unbelievable. I, I, I would generally burn them to a toast or turn them to a crisp. Would you advise someone, say someone who is potentially very high in their kind of fiber content at the minute to go straight for the bigger number or would you ease them in? Yeah, a really good question. Um, and I'm quite passionate about explaining that, you know what, if you go from little fiber to a lot of fiber, you kind of get gut symptoms. Yeah. And I want people to be aware of that because not that the gut symptoms are dangerous or harmful, but I don't want people to be surprised or turned off having fiber. So if you don't want things like extra gas or extra bloating, then go slow. Your gut will absolutely adapt. Um, even if you've got a very sensitive gut in the book, I've actually got a sensitive gut menu plan for those people with kind of more of the IBS, but we know fiber is important, but they need to be a bit more careful about the types of fibers that they include. Um, but if you, if you're like, you know, I don't care if I get extra wind, I just want to get to my fiber ASAP, then, you know, having a bit of gut symptoms is not dangerous. It just can turn some people off. So it's a case of if that's you, then go slow and steady. If you're not bothered, then, hey, go straight up. Um, and like you said, a lot of the recipes in the book have got about 15 grams of fibre per serve. So you can easily get your 50 grams across a day. 
Yeah, I think the generally the, the two that kind of come in when you you get clients to increase their vegetables is the bloating and the gas, and it's it's uh, it's the awkwardness around it as well. Yeah. Uh, where can people find out about the books? Where can people find out about yourself? And where can people work with you, Megan? Yeah, so um, you can check me out at the Gut Health Doctor. Um, so that's across you know social media, so Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I've got the website, theguthealthdoctor.com. And uh, if they want to see, you know, gut specialist dietitians, then we've got the Gut Health Clinic, um, which is based in London, but we also do online. So if you need kind of more specialist gut health advice, then I've got a brilliant team of dietitians that can help you get Amazing. That. If anyone's looking to kind of upscale their knowledge on this side of things and on the, the first book as well, I highly recommend if you've got IBS, please do get the first book. So Megan, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Shane. Appreciate it. Really, really hope you've enjoyed that episode. Dr. Megan Rossi, it's an amazing episode. I really hope you have taken something out of it. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do tag us up on your stories. Hopefully you have enjoyed it enough to go and get those amazing books that we have spoken about as well. Please leave a review up on iTunes. Please share it amongst your friends. It's it's an amazing episode. I really hope you guys have enjoyed it. So hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to share it amongst your friends.